in our hands. Here we stand. I'm a teacher, I'm black, and I'm a man. The man, hard in the man, intelligent the man, integrity the man. In demand. Teach, mentor, volunteer. Hey. All right, welcome to back to another um, episode of the In Demand podcast. Uh, we got Calvin Nellum, um, Teach Simple, Mr. Teach Simple himself. Uh, man, I'm amped and excited about today's broadcast, man. What are, what are your thoughts about time travel, Calvin? I mean, is it possible, you know, and, you know, I want someone to be able to explain just like what it is, you know, uh, we've all talked about time travel on the cartoon and a movie, you know, like what is it exactly? And is it possible? You know, um, that's one thing I really want to I care about. Definitely. Uh, man, if you could time travel, where would you go? Where would you go back to, man? Man, if I could time travel, man, I probably. Oh, that's a good question. If I could time travel, I probably go back to New Orleans, man. Just before uh, Katrina, for all that stuff happened, man. I remember it was the best week of high school. That I had all these numbers from this girl. I had I grew like a couple <laughs> inches, you know what I'm saying? And then Katrina hit, and then I never went back to that school. So I probably would probably go back to relive that first week of uh, high school. It was my freshman year, man. So what would you tell your younger self? Man. Uh, <laughs> nah, that's a good one, right? Yeah. <laughs> Man, just pick one girl, man. You can't date them all. <laughs> yeah. All right, all right, yeah. I mean, I think, man, I, I don't know, I don't know when I would go back. I would probably go back to the '90s, man. You know, the golden age of hip hop. Yeah. Uh, I came of age in the '90s. I would probably tell my younger self to definitely to be patient, man. I mean, every single thing that you go through. It's for it's for a purpose, you know, and that's what I found out in my life that everything I've been through, every experience I had, it it played out for some greater purpose in the future. So, you know, a lot of times when you're going through it, you don't know, you know what I'm saying? I would tell myself to be patient, and I would also tell myself to um, to say yes more, you know, yes to, to opportunities, you know, you know, not not yes to foolishness, but yes to opportunities. Just you know, don't 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 be pigeonholed and staying in in one mode of thinking say yes more than to, to opportunities but but yo um so we just talking but i want to bring in the expert this man right here uh, i've been following him since i started teaching in 2003 he's inspired me he's inspired my students um you know just through the lessons i've taught about him he's a um, theoretical physicist um he's researching the possibilities of uh, time travel in the 21st century. So, you know, in the, in the lifetime of our students, they may see it happen. Um, you know, I'm real amped to bring Dr. Ronald Mallet uh, onto the podcast and want to have a good time with mixing it up with them and discussing some things. Um, so let's bring them in. Let's get it. All right. Dr. Mallet, how's it going? I'm fine. Thank you. All right. Um, so, um, I guess I want to start off by asking, I mean, where, where are you right now? I'm in Connecticut. I live in a town called Coventry, Connecticut. That's uh, near the University of, uh, it's in fact, UConn. Mm -hmm. uh, you probably know about its uh, famous basketball team. Indeed. We have, we have Rip Hamilton here in Detroit from UConn. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's where I am. I'm not far from uh, the University of Connecticut. That's been my academic home for uh, over 40 years. Oh, wow. Okay. All right. So, um, man, so the, some exciting, exciting stuff. Um, 
I don't know where I don't know where to start, but um, uh, we're talking about the, the the man who's put a lot of work into making time travel a possibility within the 21st century. So just tell us a little bit about um, who you are and you know how you got started down this road. Okay, well, the thing is, is that, uh, as you mentioned, I'm a theoretical physicist. And the reason why I became interested in that subject actually was a very, very personal reason. It started off with my father. Uh, I was the oldest of, of four children, and I grew up in the Bronx, New York. And my father was a television repairman, and he was the center of my life. I mean, everything uh, for me, the sun rose and set on him. And he, uh, was fun. I mean, he was serious. He worked hard and he uh, played hard. And to me, he seemed like he was um, this giant of a man. And he was he was fun. And, and the thing is, is that he took a lot of time with me. He gave me uh, toys like gyroscope, crystal radio set. And he was always trying to explain things to me. And I think he eventually wanted me to go into the business with him because eventually he started showing me things about televisions. And the thing is, is that he looked very, very healthy and very robust, but he had a weak heart and he died suddenly of a massive heart attack. He was only 33 years old and I was 10 years old. And it, to say it devastated me is an understatement. I mean, I really didn't care anymore about life after he died. I mean, I didn't care whether I lived or died. And I was, became very depressed and I know people were worried about me. And my poor mother, I don't know how she survived. She was only 30 and she had four kids, the oldest being me and the youngest being my little sister. And uh, being an African-American woman at that time, this was in the 50s, it was hard. Somehow she kept it together. But as I said, for me, I just was in a, in a fog. But I loved to read. That was one of the other gifts that he left me. And about a year after he died, I came across the book that changed my life. It was a Classics Illustrated edition of The Time Machine by H.G. Wells. And it changed everything for me because when I opened it up, I still remember the first page of it. It said, scientific people know very well that time is just a kind of space and we can move forward and backward in time just as we can in space. And when I read that, I thought, oh, this is it. This, this, this is what I need because if I could travel back in time, I could go back and see him again and tell him what was going to happen and maybe change things. And I really, that became an obsession with me. I was only 11, but that became an obsession. I was also a student of even at that age to worry about telling other people about this. Now, you don't have to put yourself in this frame. This was back in the 50s. This was before Star Trek. We hadn't even gone to the moon. This was, uh, you know, Sputnik had just come out. I mean, people weren't even sure that we could go into space, let alone the notion of time travel. And science fiction was not popular the way that it is now. And in fact, uh, kids who were into science fiction were sometimes seemed to be a little bit, you know, suspect, a little, you know. Weird. Weird. So I, I kept it to myself. I mean, I didn't tell anyone that this was going to be my dream to try to build a time machine to go back and see my father. And in fact, what I did was I tried to put pieces of my mother kept his uh, radio and television parts. And I tried to put that together with bicycle parts. I used the cover of the magazine to try to as a guide. And uh, of course, when I turned it on, nothing happened. And I was I was a little disappointed, but I, I still felt that 
that I remember that it said scientific people know very well. So I knew that I was going to have to learn some kind of science in order to get this thing to work. So, but I didn't know what that was going to entail. But I was lucky enough that I was um, I, I was an avid reader. I mean, when I say I was an avid reader, I mean, I was a bookaholic. I mean, I, I would rather read than eat, literally. And I used to hang out at the uh, Salvation Army bookstore where you could get books for a nickel. Uh, and I should mention that after my father died, we punched into poverty. I mean, we went from the middle class to poverty. I mean, it was really, really bad. Uh, so but whatever money I could get, I would go to the... Uh, there and try to find books. And then that's when the second book I came across changed my life. On the cover of the book, it had a picture of Einstein. No, I didn't know what Einstein did, but I knew he was this great giant. I mean, this brilliant, brilliant, you know, person. He was a genius. And I knew that whatever he said was important. He was standing next to an hourglass. So just from the picture of the book on the cover, I thought maybe Einstein has something to do with time. So I got the paperback. And it was rough going. I mean, I didn't have anything like the background needed, but I did pick up the essence of what it said. It said that Einstein said that time can be altered. He said that unlike what people think about the, the old physics of Newton, where nothing can change time, there are ways you can alter time. So I knew if I could understand what Einstein did, then that might mean that I'll learn how to build a time machine because I would learn how to affect time. So Einstein became my second passion. And I knew I was gonna to have to eventually go to college, but I, as I said, we were too poor for me to go into college. So I developed, uh, I, I, you know, and this is important generally, I, mean, I tell people, I, I developed a strategy. What I decided was I was gonna go into the military. And uh, this was during the Vietnam War period. And this is important because my father had fought in the Second World War. He was a battlefield medic. And when he came out, he used the GI Bill to go to a technical school to become an electronic technician. So I thought if I go into the, uh, I went into the Air Force and I decided that I could try to save up the money and that the uh, GI Bill was reinstituted again. And so I knew that I could use that to go to college. So that's what I did right out of high school. I went right into the Air Force. And when I got out, I went to Penn State, okay, and I to major in physics. But I still kept it to myself what I was interested in, because I knew that this was not going to be a good strategy. So I developed another strategy. Einstein, it turned out, was interested in things like black holes. Some of his work led to this strange phenomenon of black holes. And it turns out that black holes, and I'll tell you a little bit about how that works, but it turns out that black holes can affect time. So I decided to study black holes, that that would be my cover story because black holes were considered to be crazy, but they were considered to be legitimate crazy as opposed to time travel, which was considered to be crazy, crazy. So I decided that by doing that, that would, I would build my career around that. And that's what I did. I, I uh, studied black holes and I studied the big bang theory of the universe. I became a specialist in Einstein's general theory of relativity. And uh, I should mention that as a theoretical physicist, I didn't do experiments. What I did was I used mathematical equations to try to understand uh, the possibility of time travel and how what Einstein had to say. Uh, in physics, the, the division of labor between experimental physics and theoretical physics. Einstein was a theoretical physicist, by the way. He used equations to try to understand the world. Experimental physicists do the experiments to see whether how the world really actually works. 
And so uh, that's what I did. I got my bachelor's, my master's, and my PhD in physics from Penn State. And that was the beginning for me. And I did learn what Einstein said. And I did learn about the real possibility, scientific possibility of time travel based on Einstein's work. So that's the backstory. And the thing is, is that that's essentially it was a it was a long journey, but it was worth it. And and one thing I love about um, the connection between you and Einstein, um, you know, Einstein, you know, he wasn't the the, the most uh, popular scientist. Right. You know, he was actually denied in certain um, PhD programs and he uh, started his his thought experiments or his daydreaming when he was working for an insurance company. Right. He was a clerk. Um, And go ahead. Yep. Well, no, no, no. The thing is, is that you're right. I mean, the thing is, is that there's two pieces of this. One, Einstein. And this is important because uh, uh, he became a patent clerk. He worked with the patent clerk. But. Now, the thing that's important that a lot of people don't realize is that he did have a bachelor's degree in physics. In other words, he did have a foundation in physics. Okay, the reason why he ended up in a patent office was he wanted to teach physics, but he couldn't get a job doing that. And he wanted to get married. And the thing is, is that so he was fortunate. A friend of his uh, established a connection for him to get the job at a patent office. But he did have a, a foundation. He did have the equivalent of a bachelor's degree from one of the top schools, colleges in Switzerland. And that, so that's where he had his foundation. Now, he didn't have a PhD at that particular point, but he did have this foundation in physics. And while he was a patent clerk, he actually did, as you said, he did these thought experiments to try to understand of things about the nature of light. He had been puzzling about light since he was a teenager, but now he had some, he had, you might say, some of the background that he needed for that. And what was good for him was the fact that uh, the patent office helped him in another way, though, because in order to review patents, you actually have to take things apart. You actually have to look at the what uh, a particular inventor is saying, and you have to try to understand it. And the thing yeah. is, that helped him sharpen his intuitive skill. And so that together with what he had been using, that was the beginning. So you might say that it was a perfect position for him because he didn't have all the things that a normal academic has to deal with. Uh, he could just, he could do his work and then he could concentrate on the things that he wanted interested in. But he had been thinking about light. That was one of the central things that he had been worrying, wondering about. In other words, he wanted to know what would happen if you tried to catch up with a light beam. That was one of the things that he was actually, that was, and he, you might say he looked at that particular problem and that eventually led him to this, what's called the special theory of relativity, which is actually the first step towards time travel, time travel to the future. But that was the beginning. So uh, so it, it was difficult for him to get the academic, and the similarity with me in a certain sense is that after I got my PhD, I wanted to become a fact academic. Einstein wanted to do that too, yeah. but he didn't have his PhD at that particular point. And eventually he did get his PhD, but he still didn't get into academia initially, okay? I didn't either because of the fact that at the time I got my PhD, the country was in a, re- a recession and it was very, very difficult to get a job. 
And the thing is, is that I knew it was going to be a challenge. Fortunately for me, I got a job uh, in a sense is a parallel. I got a job in industry. My first job wasn't as an academic. My first job was at United Technologies, it was called United Aircraft at that time. And I was working in there. I was to do theoretical analysis of something very practical. Uh, Pratt & Whitney was interested in trying to use lasers to drill holes in turbine blades. And what they wanted me to do was a mathematical analysis of that. Uh, and I was very fortunate because I had a, a boss who actually, I wasn't sure he would actually hire me initially because when I came in, my background was in relativity. It had absolutely nothing to do with anything that industry did. But I tried to convince them that as a theoretical physicist, I would be able to do uh, that work for them. His name was Jerry Peterson, by the way, and we're still friends, but he was the one who let me, gave me a chance. So I was in academia and I, I was in industry and I, I wanted to get out of there eventually because I wanted to get into a place where I could actually start studying Einstein's work and becoming a faculty member. And after two years, I eventually had the connections that I needed. Once again, Jerry Peterson and his wife, Cynthia Peterson, um, who recently passed away, by the way, she was a faculty member there at the University of Connecticut and the head of the department, um, Joseph Budnick, they were the ones who, who said, you know, this guy, we need him here. We need someone in relativity. Also, it turned out that they didn't have any African-American faculty in the sciences or engineering at that point. They had faculty members in some of the other areas like English and history, but they had no one in engineering or science. I was the first at the University of Connecticut. And so for me, that was really a major leap to go from that, go from, uh, you know, I was 100% of their uh, technical uh, faculty at that particular time. And I, and I asked the question because, um, you know, for me, my mother allowed the space for me to think and be curious. You know, that's one thing Neil deGrasse Tyson says, a baby is the most scientific because they are so curious, right? They want to ask questions and they, you know, and then hearing about your, your, you know, unfortunate tragedy and how that kind of inspired you to kind of have these, these thoughts that were above the physical realm, right? And then for me, uh, you know, it was just literally not having a dad in my life and my mother literally saying like, you can do anything you want, Calvin. You can think outside the box. If you want to be a Power Ranger, you can do that. Could you maybe just talk about the, real briefly, just talk about how tra 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 tragedy can breed inspiration and maybe make people want to think like a scientist or be a theoretical physicist. Like, how does tra tragedy uh, build that inspiration to think like a Richard Feynman, think like a Carl Sagan, think like people who don't have limitations to their, to their mental. You know, well, the, the thing is, is that I, I think that it doesn't necessarily have to be tragedy. I think what it has to be is curiosity is what you were talking about and what your mother was actually getting at. Okay. In other words, it's your curiosity that's driving you. My particular case, it was a tragedy, but for a lot of physicists, it's curiosity. And in a, in a sense, that was important for me because it wasn't just time travel that I was interested in. Eventually, I became interested in quantum physics, and that had nothing at the time to do with that. But quantum physics was, to me, something that was so weird, so bizarre. Quantum physics was like 
it was even stranger than relativity in many ways. Right. And quantum physics is one of the things that made me want to become a theoretical physicist. So to me, what's important is, you know, curiosity. But but coming back to, to something that's more fundamental, I mean, curiosity is important, you know, if you're going to become a scientist. But I think what is important, and this is something that whenever I'm in, uh, giving lectures, I've been asked to give lectures in high schools and middle schools as well as colleges. And one of the things I try to get across to the students is that it's important to dream. To me, dreaming is the fundamental thing, okay, of all of that. And, and it even comes because a lot of these kids come from broken homes. They come from, you know, uh, all kinds of circumstances. The way you overcome that is by having a dream. To me, if you have a dream, that's the first step to being able to achieve something. But yeah. here, here's where sometimes the problem comes in. The problem comes in is that when the kids have a dream about what they want to do, and I think this is important, just not just being a scientist, but for instance, becoming a musician, uh, becoming you know uh, a lawyer, becoming anything. Okay, it should be what they feel is exciting, because here's what sometimes happens. Let's suppose the kid says, you know, um, I want to play the piano. I want to be a great jazz musician. Okay, what happens is is that they'll go to their parents and they'll tell them what it is that they want to do, and the parents say, Well, how are you going to make a living do me? That is the worst thing a parent can say is how are you going to make a living doing that? Because that kills it for the kid. Okay. Because the thing is, is that what I tell them is, is that don't even think about that. If you have a dream, then what you have to do then though, is you have to develop a strategy for how to achieve that dream. Okay. And one of the things that if you want to become a, a pianist, if you want to become a great athlete, then the thing is, is that you have to work. That's the thing. You have to say, OK, this is what I want to do. And I'm going to have to be the best at it because that's the key thing here. Because if you become good at what it is that you're going to do. Then I tell them that you're going to be able to convince someone to pay you to do it. I said, because think about this. They pay me to talk about black holes and time travel. I get paid to do that. I'm saying, what? I wouldn't do that for nothing. I don't know. But the thing is that they, they pay me to do that. I mean, you know, that, that's crazy. Yes. But the thing is, is that what you have to do is you have to work and show that you were good enough at it to do it, okay? And the thing is, is that just like my first job, you know, going to lasers, which had nothing to do with, with relativity, but what I did was I, I felt that I was good enough at what I was able to do. That I could turn my physics to that direction and I could achieve what it is that I wanted to do. Well, the important thing for, for people to have, for students to have, for kids to have, is they have to have a dream. Okay. Now, right. of course, I have a vested interest. What I would like them to do is to have a dream in the STEM areas. Okay. Because STEM is important for our future science, technology, engineering, and math, okay? Those are the things of the future. So what I would love is for them to, to develop a passion in some area like that. Now, there's things that they can be excited about. Robotics, for example. I've had kids say, oh, man, that's something I want to do. I want to go into robots or, you know, I want to go into space. You know, all of these things are things that they can dream about. That's the first step. 
Then the second step is to work, is to actually do the work that's necessary to do it. Now, sometimes that requires, you know, developing a strategy because we were poor. So I had to go into the military, you know, and I tell kids, I tell them that's important for them to realize that because they come from different backgrounds and they see me now. They don't see the way that I was. And so it's important for them to know that it wasn't that easy, that I came from a poor home in order to do it. You can do it. You just have to develop a strategy to do it. So the first thing is is to have a dream, a goal. It's another word for a dream, is to develop a goal for yourself. And it should be something you are excited about. Um, You know, and I want to... Ask you, um, you know, you mentioned that you had this um, idea of time travel before, you know, science for science fiction really started popping off and being accepted. And, and yeah, you know, and so I wonder, you know, even I know I read in your book, you said that, you know, you kind of kept it secret, you know, um, you know, as you were you know, going up through the ranks. Um, so we're having we're having such a, um, you know, uh, a goal to what some would say an outlandish goal. Like what, what kept you motivated or whether, did you have people in your corner or uh, teachers or friends that you were able to confide in that kind of kept you um, going from a young age until now on, on this journey? Uh, no, <laughs> no. okay, <laughs> no. <laughs> Because I didn't tell them because they, they didn't know. But what I have to say is that, yeah, I had, them, they, they, I was encouraged in other ways. Okay. I had um, a math teacher and uh, I became passionately interested in algebra because of the fact that she made it fun. And she was actually someone who helped me along the way, okay, and encouraged me. And I became uh, interested in electronics and I had a wonderful electronics teacher. And I actually mentioned them in my book. That's the wonderful thing about when you're writing a book. I mentioned my wonderful algebra teacher, my wonderful electronics teacher, as well as my English teacher. I love reading. I said it was a passion. So I should say that I had people help me along the way. Now, one thing that was really crucial that you bring up, I'm glad that you bring is because this did help me in a major way. When I got out of the Air Force and I started in college, okay, the entire time I was in the Air Force, I overdid it. I actually was, as I said, I was a computer technician and I had no life at all. What I did was I put myself on the graveyard shift, mm. which is eight, 12 at midnight to eight in the morning. You know, I, this computer was a strategic air command computer. It's 24 seven. And so I chose that shift so that I could study all the time by myself. I didn't date. I didn't do anything except study. Okay. Now, that helped develop my mind, but you've got to be careful. You need to have some sort of a balanced life. Mm-hmm. So when I started college and I was really you know, into it, I was suffering burnout. Right. Like I said, this is important for, for people to understand you know, all the things that a person goes through. So I, had a, I, I fell in love. Unfortunately, the young woman I fell in love with in college was uh, she took me home to dinner just for her parents. And uh, you can guess how this story was going to go, go because it turns out that she was white. You know, she was white. Uh, and her mother treated me very, very nicely. 
But when her father came home, I felt like the temperature dropped below zero. And he was he was courteous with me, but he made sure he told her and she told me afterwards, he said, don't you ever have that man in your house again. Now, here I was. I was a veteran. I was studying to become a physicist. I had never been in trouble for anything, never used drugs, never, you know, nothing. He knew nothing about me. And that was his automatic attitude. And of course, that ended the relationship. And so I was already feeling burned out. And I decided to hell with it. I decided to leave college. And I ran away to New York. When I was in New York, I got a job as a research technician for a company called Markite. Okay. And what they did was they made these electronic uh, devices, uh, voltage regulators that uh, were actually used on rockets. Okay. And the thing is, is that the, my boss was an engineer named Scott Bonas. Now, never forget his name or him, because what would happen at the lunch during the lunches, the other technicians would be playing dominoes or cards and everything. I would be in a corner reading a physics book. And he took notice of that. And he came over to me and he said, you know, Ron, I want to ask you about yourself. Well, how, how did you get here? And I told him, I told him, you know, what had happened. And he said, Ron, you've got to go back to college. He said, you know, you, you talked to me about some of the ideas you had for improving the potentiometers here. He said, but let me tell you. If as long as you're here, as long as you're in the status that you're going to have, it's yeah. going to be people like me that are going to take advantage of that. Right. He said, you've got to go back. He said, and and he hounded me. He hounded me. Now, here was this was a white male, by the way. That's important. He hounded me. And then eventually he decided he was leaving the company. And he said he made me promise. He said, Ron, you've got to promise me that you're going to go back. Because if you don't, it will be the single worst mistake that you've ever made in your life. Promise me. And I admired him very much. And I, and I, I said, you know, I said, uh, Mr. Bonas, yes, I'll, I'll go back. That's why I'm saying that was an important turning point. Because he could not have said, he, he didn't have to say anything to me. He could have just simply utilized me. But he didn't. He felt that strongly about me that he was willing to step up and point me back to school. So that's that's an important thing. That, that's really an important thing. Well, so what was your balance when you went back to school? You mentioned like having balance. Like how did you, you know, um, researching and time travel, you know, what was what were the things you did to balance yourself out? Well, what, one of the things is that, as I said, fortunately now I had a wife that helped balance things out because now I had a real, you know, I had, a life besides physics. Right. And the other important thing was is that she was extremely supportive of me. Right. I had only been away for half a year. So when I went back, I got, I was like totally on track then. I mean, I finished my uh, bachelor's degree in three years. I finished my master's degree in one year. And I made a record of finishing my PhD. It took me just two and a half years to finish my PhD. And wow. that, was, that was very, very, very unusual. OK, so the thing is, is that and that was the thing. Now, now I could concentrate. And now this is where I really understood how time travel could be possible. And I was able to focus on that. And as I said, I was now publishing in all different areas uh, besides just simply, you know, black holes. But that was that was the beginning of it. Now, 
So that tells you the real, real life aspect of, of my life. But now let me tell you about the real possibility of time travel, okay? Because is it real? Is it possible? And the thing is, is that not only is it possible, we actually have done it for the future. We, we actually know how, and we have actually done it. We've actually time traveled into the future. Not far, but we have. We haven't done it to the past yet. And both of these possibilities, time travel into the future and time travel into the past are real, okay? And I'll tell you how that works, okay? Einstein in 1905 developed a theory that was called the special theory of relativity. And to put that theory into a nutshell, what he said is that time is affected by speed. What he meant by that is time for a moving clock slows down. The faster you move, the more time slows down. Now your heart is a clock. That means that if you were moving fast enough, you wouldn't notice it, but your heart rate would start slowing down. It's like when you're in your car, when you're traveling down the highway at 65 miles an hour, you don't feel it. People, however, see you zooming by. It's the same thing. If you're on a rocket that is traveling fast enough, Einstein said that, that that time on that rocket will actually slow down. Your heart rate will actually slow down. People who are watching you would actually see you age less than everyone else. Now, why would that lead to the possibility of time travel? Well, think about it. If you're traveling fast enough in a rocket, say, okay, and your heart rate metabolism are slowing down, you're not aging the way everyone else is. So if you travel, for example, suppose you went out into in space and you went out in space and for you, it only appeared that only five years had passed. If you were traveling fast enough and came back to earth, since everyone else on earth was aging normally, even though it appeared like it was only five years for you, decades could actually have passed here on the earth. You could actually come back here on the earth and find out that you were hundreds of years in the future, but you had only aged a few years. That's time travel in the future. Now you might say, hey, wait a minute, has that been shown? Not only has it been shown, it's been shown on a large scale and on a small scale, okay? What was done, this was done in a real experiment that didn't get the kind of press that it should have done. In 1971, an experiment was done at the Naval Observatory. What they did was they took two atomic clocks. Now, you know an atomic clock is the most precise timekeeping mechanism we have. Mm -hmm. They put one of the atomic clocks on an ordinary passenger jet, and they kept the other clock at rest at the Naval Observatory. They flew the passenger jet around the world about the speed of sound. When they brought the passenger jet back, they found that the clock that had been on the passenger jet had actually slowed down compared to the clock that was at rest at the Naval Observatory. That means that those people that were on board that plane, they actually had aged a little less. Now, the amount was so small that they, you needed an atomic clock to measure it. That's because the plane was only traveling at the speed of sound. If that plane had been traveling close to the speed of light, the effect would have been extremely dramatic because according to Einstein's equation, it depends on speed. It happens at any speed, but it only happens at a really measurable speed when you travel close to the speed of light. So when we have rockets that can go close to the speed of light, we will actually, astronauts will actually have to take that into account. 
If they're traveling close to the speed of light, only a few years will be passing for them. But when they come back, if they have families back here on the earth, they could come back and find out that they're younger than their grandkids. Weird, but it's real. Now, the other way that it's been shown even in a more dramatic way is there's a device called the Large Hadron Collider in CERN, Switzerland. What this device does is it speeds up subatomic particles and smashes them into each other and it creates other particles. Now, the thing is, is that some of these subatomic particles only live for a very, very short period of time and completely disintegrate. But what they found is that when they speed these particles up close to the speed of light, their internal clock slows down and they can get these particles to live 10, 20, 30 times longer than they normally would. If this was translated into human scale, this means that they are going into the distant future compared to the people in the laboratory. So we, we actually routinely send subatomic particles into the distant future every time we turn on the, the Large Hadron Collider. So this, this ability to send things into the future is real and has been demonstrated. As I said, it's not dramatic on the human scale yet, but eventually it will be. So once again, coming back to Einstein's special theory of relativity, the essence of his theory is time is affected by speed. The faster you move, the more time slows down. Now, you can't go back into the past using this, no matter how fast you go. For one thing, there's a barrier. You can't travel faster than the speed of light. You can't even get to the speed of light. Now, a lot of people say, wait a minute, wait a minute. The sound barrier was there, and eventually we were able to, to get across that. Why can't we break the speed, a limit for light? That is a whole different limit. The speed of light is actually something built into the laws of physics itself. It's part of the most famous equation that every school child has heard of. In fact, it's on my tie. MC squared. And that is why. Now, let me explain why, because people all the time ask me, why can't we get, go faster than the speed of light? Let's come back to that equation. What does that equation mean? The E in that equation means energy. Uh -huh. The M in that equation means matter, mass. And the, the C in that equation stands for the speed of light times itself. That's what C squared means, speed of light times itself. Okay. Now, what that equation says is that matter and energy are equivalent. They're not the same, but it means that they're equivalent. Otherwise, I can convert a little bit of matter into a lot of energy. And everyone knows that because, you know, that's the atomic bomb and nuclear power. However, people forget that it's an equation. That equation can be read in the other direction. When you have an equation, you can read it in both directions. That means that if I have a lot of energy, I can convert it into matter. That's important. And in fact, that's what happens in the, in the uh, Large Hadron Collider. When they smash the subatomic particles together, the energy that's created from them actually can convert itself into particles. Now, here's why it limits you. Suppose that I want to get a rocket to go faster. What I have to do is give it more energy, okay? Get it faster. But a little bit of that energy is going to go into the mass of the rocket. What does that mean? The rocket's going to become more massive. When it becomes more massive, that means it's going to be a little harder to move it. So I'm going to have to put in more energy to get it to go a little faster. But if I get try to get it to go a little faster, that energy goes into making the rocket more massive. What you find is that eventually what happens is, is that 
to get that rocket to go at the speed of light, I would have to put an infinite amount of energy into it to overcome the infinite amount of mass that that rocket became. So you see what's happening there? It's yeah. a, when if, if I'm saying that I need an infinite amount of energy, that's the same thing as saying it can't be done. So so the limit is actually in that basic equation equals mc squared. And I tell people that's important to realize because that equation we know is real. We use it for our atomic energy and for, unfortunately for our nuclear weapons. So that's why we can't go at the speed of light or past it, but we can go up to the speed of light. So we will be able to do that, but we can't go past that. So we can't use that to go back in the past. But does that mean it's not possible to go back in the past? No, Einstein also found that there is another way. And the other way comes from his second theory. It took him 10 years to develop another theory that goes beyond the special theory of relativity. In fact, it's called the general theory of relativity. Uh -huh. And what this theory says is, remember the special theory said that time is affected by speed. To put simply, the general theory of relativity says time is affected by gravity. So if, if you want to tell people the difference between those two, that's the difference. And what did Einstein mean by time is affected by gravity? What he meant is, is the stronger gravity is, the more time will slow down. That means that a clock here at the surface of the Earth where gravity is strong should be running slower than a clock at a high altitude, for instance, at the top of a mountain. Now, you might say, well, this has that been shown? Not only has that been shown, but once again, people don't realize it's actually part of their everyday life. And what do I mean by that? I don't know. I, you probably in your car, I have in mine, I have a GPS system. Yeah. It helps me to get where I'm going. That system works because of Einstein's general theory of relativity. Let me explain. The way the GPS system works is right now above us, there are satellites that are in orbit sending signals down to your clock, you, your unit has a clock in it, in your car has a, cl a clock in it. Those satellites have a clock on them. And the way this it, system works is that at a certain time, a signal is sent from the satellite, okay? It's sent from the satellite and it reaches your unit at a certain time, okay? So there's a very, very simple relationship between distance, speed, and time. If you know any two of those, you can compute the other. So if I know, for example, the time the signal was sent and the time the signal was received, and I know the speed of the signal, which is speed of light, I can compute distance. It's that simple. I know. Now, when the system is setting up, they actually use Newton's notion of time. Newton's theory worked very, very well. In fact, Newton's theory was the theory that was used to get rockets to the moon. Okay, it wasn't Einstein's theory. And what Newton's theory says is that nothing can affect time. Speed can't affect time. Gravity can't affect time. Nothing can affect time. And on our everyday scale, we find that to be true. But Einstein said that no, gravity can affect time. And the stronger gravity is, the more time will slow down. That means that the clock in your unit at the surface of the Earth is actually running slower than those clocks on board those satellites. 
they're actually running a little faster. And that means that they have to use computers to take that into account. And when they did, the system was working right. So when they first set up the system, it wasn't, it wasn't working right because they were using Newton's theory of time, which said gravity can't affect it. So when they used when they used Einstein's theory of time, so what I tell people is every time you turn your G, use your GPS, you should have a mental nod to Einstein because if it hadn't been for his general theory of relativity, we wouldn't be getting the system to work right. And, and so that's that's and I really appreciate the the in depth simplistic mm -hmm. uh, definition of special theory of relativity compared to uh, general general theory relativity. So this is my question. So if time can be affected by gravity, right. and we know that the gravitational force, right? Right. Is, uh, a force times G times mass times mass divided by R squared. So that means you need those two masses. So are we saying essentially that if time is affected by gravity, are we saying that time has mass? Uh, no. No, no, time does not have mass. The thing is, is that, that remember the thing that, that's affecting it, it's not the mass, it's actually energy. I mean, time, here's, here's the point. You have to realize that when you're talking about time, you're talking about the way in which you're measuring something with your clock, with your, you know, that doesn't, so no, that, what it's saying is, is that time is actually a way in which we can measure the passage of something, okay? And it, and, Gravity, it, it's much more, okay, I'm going to go into, we're going to go deep dive now. Okay. <laughs> the thing is that, that this, because here's, here's the thing, when you ask about gravity, because you're asking something that, that in order to answer it, we have to get a little bit more subtle. Because the thing is, is that, that Newton didn't really know what gravity was. Newton knew that he could actually compute the gravitational force but he couldn't say what gravity was. What your, your, your question is, what is gravity? Mm -hmm. okay. And how is that related to time? Mm -hmm. And that's what I'm gonna try to answer. Mm -hmm. Okay, so hang in there. No, yeah, and before you answer, I just wanna just preface the difference between Newtonian classical physics and modern physics and how a lot of this stuff is like changing, right? And time before modern physics wasn't uh considered like you're saying like like time was the concept that time can be changed right because time is considered a scalar in uh newtonian physics but it's it changes when you get on on different scales but that's why i just wanted to preface that but go ahead yeah yeah no no the thing is is that you're absolutely the thing is is that according to newton space and time are two separate things and Einstein's theory, they're called space-time. Mm -hmm. In other words, according to Einstein, the two concepts, space and time, are linked to each other. And that's why, according to Einstein, when you're moving through space, you're actually going to affect time because time is linked to space. That's why it's called time is called the fourth dimension. Wow. In Newton's theory, time was not considered another dimension. It wow. was something separate altogether. In Einstein's theory, time is just another dimension, okay? And they're, they're linked to each other. So you can actually use space to affect time and time to affect space. 
And that's why it's called space time. That's very, very important. That's a very subtle you know, point. Yeah, you did remind me. You did. You're a physics mate. You're, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. I do this stuff, man. And I'm listening to you and I'm understanding everything. But yeah, I mean, you could briefly talk about just like how the, the relationship between time and gravity, unless Quan has like another question before you get well, into that. Well, yeah. no, well I, I have a question. Um, let me see. Well, how did you know it was time to present your findings to the world, man? You know, kind of keeping it close. Um, yeah. You know, when did you know it was time to open it up and, and put it out to the to the uh, your colleagues and to the world? Okay, no, that's an excellent question because whenever I was interviewed uh, for the position at the University of Connecticut, okay, I knew I had better not say anything about time travel because you know there was I you know African American physicists are already an endangered species, and I wanted to make sure there was going to be one there at the University of Connecticut and not one less. So the thing is, is that I, uh, that's why what I did was I told him about my work with black holes and uh, my work with uh, the Big Bang Theory, but I, did, I left out time travel. Now, why is that? The thing is, is that climbing up the academic ladder, it's like going through anything. You, know, you start out as an assistant professor, then you become an associate professor, then you become a full professor. There's another thing in there that's very, very important for academics. It's called tenure, okay? Right. Tenure is, is that after a certain period of time, usually it's about um, six years, six years that you're in a position, they decide, your colleagues decide whether they want to keep you around. Prior to that, they can actually fire you without cause. You can actually be terminated is what they would call it, without cause. When you get tenure, that actually protects you in the sense that you can now come up with some crazy ideas and you're protected after that. Okay, so tenure is very important and climbing up the academic ladder is important. Okay? Yeah. And the notion of, of, of tenure is, what's, is academic freedom so that you can come across and be more creative really, uh, with your ideas. Now, the thing is, is that once again, I wanted to make sure I would survive. So I did not say anything about this until I not only had tenure, which was early, I got my tenure after about five years. It took me much longer to become a full professor, okay, over a decade, well, a couple of decades. So, but eventually I became a tenured full professor. Wow. Now, when I became a tenured full professor, I was protected. <laughs> Okay. I mean, I was protected. I could consider all kinds of analogies, but I won't go there. But I was I was protected. Okay. And so I was able to come out of the time travel closet at that point. And that's what I did. Okay. Because I knew they couldn't fire me because uh, I hadn't done anything illegal. I just talked about something that might be a little crazy. Okay. And that was, that was, so that's why it took me that long to answer the, your, your question. Did you, find, did you find that any other uh, physicists, scientists came out of the closet once you made that step out? No, the thing is, is that other physicists had already been looking at this. Now things had changed by the way, because the country in a sense, you might say the world had caught up with the teenagers or the kids who were interested in science fiction. 
all during that time now were uh, Star Trek, you know. So now I was part of the the group, the pe people that were part of my generation. Now, people like Kip Thorne and others, they had grown up with Star Trek. They were much more open to these crazy ideas than the previous generation of physicists had been. <coughs> Excuse me. So from that standpoint, it was so easy. It was, it was easier to come across. Now, I should say that what's, what's really important, and this is really important, is the fact that my work was based on Einstein's theory of relativity, Einstein's general theory of relativity. So it's not that you can just simply come up with a weird idea. It has to be based on established scientific fact. And Einstein's general theory of relativity had been proven to be valid with many different experiments. That's important. So my work had a foundation on it. That's the reason why my colleagues were willing to take it seriously at all. And I should say that it wasn't, and I published my work this is the other thing that people don't realize. Physicists and other scientists, not just simply physicists, they have to have their work peer reviewed. That's really important. I mean, because like in medicine and all these other areas, it has to be reviewed by your peers. But what that means is that it goes to anonymous referees. Why are they anonymous? That's because you can't come back and do, you know, you can't, they have to be unknown to you, okay? So that you, you, you have to take what their criticism is. And that's important because then they actually say, look, this work makes sense. It has a sound foundation to it. Even if it hasn't been in case of theoretical physics, if it hasn't been established experimentally, it still has to be considered consistent mathematically. So that's important. So my, my work had been peer reviewed and published in peer reviewed journals. That's, that's really important. Um, but the thing is, is that I still had to prove it the equations, the equations, I actually had to demonstrate it. I, I, I want to mention, another, because you were mentioning earlier about people who have supported you in, along your journey. And another person that I want to mention actually was a major physicist, because this was really very, very important to me, because you might say it brought everything back together for me. My breakthrough came at the beginning of the 20th century. I actually made my breakthrough in how the possibility of time travel to the past could be done using lasers, by the way. Uh, and this, it, it was in, um, I re still remember the peer reviewed paper came back uh, ex being accepted for publication in a major physics journal called Physics Letters. And the thing is, is that one of my colleagues at the University of Michigan uh, invited me to give a talk about my work. Mm -hmm. And that actually started things off for me because it turned out that the, uh, the University of Michigan, they, their science department has a lot of prestige associated with it. Okay. Hey, you, you see, I'm laughing right now. My wife is, uh, she's, she, uh, she's a Wolverine. She graduated from, from U of M. We have that discussion all the time. You oh, yeah. your top five <laughs> and everything. Yeah. Oh, it is. And this was important for me because it turned out that the uh, uh, major science publications, popular science publications, actually the wire services keep an eye out on what comes out of Michigan, the University of Michigan. And uh, my, he asked me to, uh, to give a talk at their colloquium. And uh, I was going to call my talk, it had a dry name like... Uh, 
was uh, the gravity of circulating light. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and Fred Adams was this, my colleague. And Fred said, you know, Ron, he said, that's too dry. Who, who's going to come to the talk? He said, why don't we, he said, since you've been interested in time travel and now you're willing to admit that, he said, why don't we tag that on and say the uh, gravity of circulating light, a route, a possible route to time travel. And the thing is, is that turned out to change things because one of the major international popular magazines, okay, uh, turned out to uh, pick that up. And they actually, uh, in fact, I still think, Yeah, New Scientist was the uh, magazine, and this was the uh, cover of it. And and I made the cover of the story. This was actually, the, I made the article, Flashback. Wow. Which was the world's first science. And so when that came out, the day before, we had just had a few uh, emails. But after that came out, page after page after page. And in a sense, that's when my work actually became noticed generally, okay? And I was invited. The other thing that made me very proud of that is that there was, there was an international conference that was going to be held. Uh, and this, this really was something that, that touched me deeply. It was the International Association for Relativistic Dynamics. And uh, it was an international conference, but it was going to be held at Howard University that year. And I was invited to give a talk at that conference. Now, the thing is, is that there's some, well, there were some extremely high-powered physicists that were giving talks. And one of the physicists who was giving a talk was a man named Bryce DeWitt. He was one of the major people in relativity, in physics, okay? Uh, he was the uh, director of the Center for Relativity at the University of Texas in Austin. In any case, and I, I, I won't be able to go into it, but there was an amusing incident that happened in connection with his giving a talk. In those days, people used um, transparencies. That this was this shows you this was this was way 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 back, you know. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, is that uh, Dewitt gave his talk just before my talk. Mm. And Dewitt, Dewitt uh, said uh, that you don't need to have a lot of transparencies to uh, to give your lecture. And he <laughs> said, in fact, he said, I only have a half a dozen, you know. <laughs> you don't need to tell people everything that you know about the subject, you know? And then see, gave a beautiful talk, okay? And as I said, I was coming up right after him. Now, number one, coming up right after him, I knew how the guy who felt up was coming up right after Babe Ruth must have felt, yeah. you know? And I thought, oh boy, because I had this huge experiences. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, Oh Lord, what am I going to do? You know, and I decided I was going to just face it right up. I actually had just 26 transparencies, but it was way over the number yet. So what I said was is that. Uh, so when I went up, I said, uh, "Well, I said first I have to tell you that uh, I have no more than 60 transparencies." And I, and I said, "When when I saw that Professor Dewitt was giving his talk." I decided that I had to tell you everything I know about the subject. And he laughed and they laughed and, you know, but now at the end of my talk, and and it was a technical talk, so I had to show all the equations and everything. And at the end of my talk, I told the reason why I was interested in the subject of time travel, which is very unusual to get the personal reason, okay? But I decided this audience, I wanted to tell them the personal reason why I had gone through all of this work and everything. And what surprised me is that DeWitt, 
during the question and answer period, DeWitt could have told me this privately, but he actually made a point of publicly saying to the audience during the first the uh, question and answer period, he said, I don't know whether your father is ever going to see, you'll be able to see your father again, but he would have been proud of you. Now, for him to say that to that huge audience right there, I have to tell you, it brought it all together. To have someone with that kind of a reputation make that statement, put it, pulled it all together for me. And afterwards, he and his wife invited me to lunch, and I thanked him for making that public statement. And it was clear that he knew what he was doing, that he wanted to make that that statement. And, and I, I just have to tell you, uh, it, it still even now means so much to me because he got it. I had put in all that work to become a physicist, a professional physicist. And for him to say that, that my father would be proud of me because that's one of the most important things for me is to know that he would have been proud of me. So, And it seems like um, just how you talk about your father, how he was almost like even prepping you for this life. Like just, uh, I know in your book, you talk about how he would quiz you when you come home from school and just teaching you uh, about the inner workings of things and, and really giving you the gift of reading. I mean, uh, I think about my, my own kids. Um, we didn't have a television in our house uh, for the first, man, first five years of their life. And their only entertainment was books. And they carry that with them now. They pick up a book for entertainment, you know, and that reading was a, a lot for, you know, that gift. Like you said, your father gave that gift of being interested in reading and reading books and things like that. So, um, you know, it just seems like, you know, when I read your story and how your father influenced you and, um, you know, and then how he, his influence was actually still there throughout your, you know, your, your whole career and coming full circle. I think, you know, when I was, you know, looking at that in the, in the book, you know, when you, when you said DeWitt got up and, and said that publicly, you know, I just I just imagine the whole scenario like, man, I know uh, you probably had to keep from getting emotional right in front of everybody. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I just I just think that your story, um, your father, you know, your mother, um, you know, that personal passion, that's something that I talk about with teachers all the time. Like and I think it's true for any endeavor that you have to bring your personal passion into what you're doing. Because right. you know, other than that, you know, you just, you know, nobody's going to, you know, I, I, and I just find it interesting that after everything you said, DeWitt was able to like, your father would be proud of you, <laughs> you know, that because he saw that personal passion and it probably struck something in him as well. So and I think that that's the same thing with especially with teachers when you're up teaching and and the, the kids or your colleagues can see your personal passion shining through they connect with it as well. So. Oh, yeah. No, I, absolutely. And, and the other point that I want to emphasize on, on that is the fact that I, I try to, to tell parents the importance of spending that time with their children, because it, it may not seem like they're spending a lot, but the, the amount and the repercussions of that, it goes way beyond what they, you know, what they may think they're doing. And so it's so important for them. And I think, you know, sometimes I think that that uh, it's important generally, but I think it's especially important for African American men to do that with their kids, right. time with their kids. You know, I think that's ex extremely 
important. And sometimes African-American men are given a bit of a bad rap about that. And that's not true. It's just, but it's the thing is, is that it's, it's so important because the, what it does, it's just, they can't even imagine the impact that it has on me because it has kept me, really has kept me on a straight and narrow throughout my life. You know, um, Stephen King has a phrase, there's this um, series of books he has called The Dark Tower. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, is that it's this um, gunfighter this, that he has in there that, that it's like they are a group of people who are like the lawmen in this alternate universe. But the highest praise that one can give that's associated with uh, honoring a parent is saying, I have not forgotten the face of my father. Mm. And that is the that's that to me is one of the highest important things is not to have forgotten forgotten the face of your father. You know, so but now coming back <laughs> to, to uh space time, the thing is is that Einstein's actually explained what gravity is. As I said, Newton really didn't say what gravity is. He just he said it's this force between two pieces of matter that attract each other. Einstein went beyond that. And here's what Einstein said. Imagine right now that I have right around in front of me uh, a taunt rubber sheet. Okay, just imagine a trampoline, for example. Yeah. Now imagine I put a bowling ball on that rubber sheet. What's it going to do? It's going to curve right. the sheet. Now, suppose that I take that now imagine that I take a marble and I put it on that rubber sheet. Now, suppose the, the rubber sheet now, is, it's there, but it's transparent, okay? So all you can see is the bowling ball and the marble. So when I put the marble on the sheet, since the bowling ball is curving it, the marble is going to move towards the bowling ball. Right. Since you can't see rubber sheet, you're going to say, aha, somehow the bowling ball is pulling on the marble. But you know that's not really what's happening. What's really happening is, is that the bowling ball is curving the rubber sheet and the, and the bo- marble is just moving along that curve. Oh. Okay? okay? And in fact, suppose that I take that marble, I actually I actually have a, a device that I call, it's called a gravity platform. And whenever I'm giving lectures, I actually, it actually is a small trampoline. And so I can demonstrate to people what it looks like. So suppose I give that marble a little bit of a sideways motion. I can get that Marble, marble to orbit the bowling ball. And what it would appear is, is that somehow the bowling ball is keeping that marble in orbit, like a skater in a roller derby ring. But what you know is, is that the bowling ball is curving that rubber sheet. Einstein said that's an analogy to what gravity is. The sun is actually bending the empty space around it. You can't see it but it's actually bending the empty space around it. And the earth is like that marble. The earth is just moving in that curve. In fact, if the earth didn't have a little sideways motion, it would move right into the sun. But fortunately, when the solar system was formed, it it was like giving the marble a little push and the earth is orbiting the sun just the way that marble is orbiting, okay? And so what Einstein said is, is that what we call gravity is actually the bending of space by a massive object. 
Right now, the earth is bending the space around you. When you jump up, the reason why you come down is because space is curved by the earth where you are. And so what we call gravity is actually the curvature of space itself, the warping of space itself. That is what gravity is. Now, you have to be careful because popularizers sometimes get it wrong. Popularizers sometimes say gravity causes the bending of space. That's wrong. Gravity does not cause the bending of space. Gravity is the bending of space. That semantic difference is key. Gravity doesn't cause the bending of space. Gravity is the bending of space. And so that's so Einstein explained what Newton couldn't. Gravity is actually the bending of space by a massive object, the sun, okay, for example. Now, it turns out that, remember I said that according to Einstein, time and space are linked to each other. That means that according to Einstein, if space is being bent, then time is being bent. And what does the bending of time mean? The bending of time shows up as clocks slowing down. So the more space is bent, the more time is bent, and the slower time moves. Okay, so that's why time is actually a part of space and the bending of space. Now, this is why the, the what a black hole does is a black hole bends space around it, and it causes time to slow down. Now you can be, see why I became interested in black holes. So according to Einstein, a black hole, which is the strongest gravitational force that there is, I should remind people what a black hole actually is. Stars, all stars, our sun, for example, are hydrogen burning engines. What I mean by that is the sun is actually a ball of hydrogen gas. And the gravity of that gas pulls the hydrogen atoms together. When they smash into each other, they produce helium. And when they produce helium, a little bit of energy is given off. That little bit of energy that's given off comes from Einstein's famous equation again, equals mc squared. That little bit of energy that goes given off is what we get as light and life here on the planet, that energy. So that's what the sun is doing right now. It's burning up hydrogen to produce helium. And it's giving off this energy. And the gravity of the sun wants to push it in. But the pressure the, of the radiation, the, you know, the energy pushes out. It's like a pressure cooker. Okay. Eventually, what happens is, is that every star will eventually use up that fuel. And if the star is big enough, you know, the light that comes out from the star, we don't think of light as having, uh, you know, it's not matter. We don't, so we don't think of light being affected by gravity, but it is, okay? According to Einstein, gravity can affect light. Now, what happens when you throw an object up? When you throw an object up, it comes back down. Right. Okay? Now, if I shine a flashlight up, it just keeps going upward. But right. now, suppose that, that I was on a star that was beginning to collapse. The gravity around that star would start getting stronger and stronger and stronger. Eventually, what will happen is, is that as that star is shrinking and the gravity becomes great enough, the very light that tries to escape from that star 
will get pulled back down to the surface of the star. So suppose you're standing outside the star and you're watching the star collapse. Eventually what will happen is, is that when the star starts to collapse, it will actually get to a point where it will actually suck back all the light that tries to get out. So if the star is sucking back in all the light that comes out, what do you see? A hole. Right. That's what a black hole is. A black hole is just simply a star that has collapsed to a point where the gravity is so great that all the light that tries to get out gets pulled back. It also now though, becomes so great, that gravity, that time slows down to a point where time almost comes to a halt. Okay, So time next to a black hole can actually nearly come to a halt because gravity becomes so great. That's what happens with ordinary black holes. But now what happens if the black hole is rotating? Now we come to how uh, time goes back into the past. Uh, if the black hole is rotating, remember that space is like a fabric, right? So when the black hole is rotating, it can actually cause a twisting of space, okay? Think of stirring in a, in a cup of coffee, okay? The black hole will actually twist space around. Now remember, and this is important. Remember I said that space and time are linked to each other. Yeah. Normally, time for all of us moves along a straight line throughout our entire life. At the bottom of the line is the past. Let's say the middle of that line is the present and the top of that line is the future. Throughout our entire life, we live along that timeline. But now let's suppose I could get close to a rotating black hole. What I would find is that since space is getting twisted, time, right, you got it. Time is gonna get twisted into a loop. So what's gonna happen? I start out at the past, I move towards the present, I move towards the future, but I've made a loop out of time. So I can go from the future to what? The past. So by twisting space, I can twist time into a loop. And along that loop in time, I can travel back into the past. So a rotating black hole could actually allow for the possibility of time travel into the past. Mathematically, we can show this, okay? We haven't done it experimentally, but we can actually show mathematically that loops in time occur next to a rotating black hole that could lead to the possibility of time travel to the past. So Einstein's theory not only allows for time travel to the future, time slows down, but Einstein's general theory of relativity allows for the possibility of loops in time, which can allow for time travel to the past. So the general theory of relativity and this is known by physicists generally, can allow for the possibility of time travel to the past, okay? And this is what a lot of theories are based on, including mine. You might say, well, then what was my particular contribution to this? Mm -hmm. My particular contribution came from the fact that there's a little known aspect in Einstein's theory. We all are familiar with the fact that matter can create gravity, okay? The gravity of the Earth keeps us anchored. The gravity of the sun keeps the Earth in orbit. But in Einstein's theory, something else can create gravity that in Newton's theory, it can't. Light itself can create gravity. Light itself can cause a bending of space. Even though light is matter, the energy of light can create gravity. And that's when my break, where my breakthrough is based on, because Let's look at this logically. We know that gravity can affect time. 
right? If gravity can affect time and light can create gravity, then light can affect time. So my breakthrough was to say, let's manipulate light. And if we can manipulate light, we can manipulate time. And what I found, and when I say found, remember, I'm a theoretical physicist, so I did this all mathematically. What I found was that if you, there's a real device, it's called a ring laser, by the way. And now this, this again shows how when things, you, you were mentioning earlier that uh, about how things in your life, you don't want to change too much because they can lead to different stages and you don't know what they're going to lead to. If I hadn't been at United Technologies mm. studying lasers, I would not have known about this device called a ring laser. That was a key for my breakthrough because a ring laser is just simply a device. If you have a set of mirrors, you can bounce laser light off of the mirrors and you can get laser light to go into a loop. Okay. You can see where this might be going. If I have laser light going into a loop, then this laser light is going to create a sort of a circulating gravitational field. But now what did I already say about a circulating gravitational field of a rotating black hole? It can create loops in time. So if, if I'm able to show that a circulating light beam can cause this twisting of space, which I did mathematically, then it could lead to a twisting of time into a loop. So a circulating beam of laser light could lead to loops in time and could lead to the possibility of time travel to the past. So my breakthrough was to show mathematically a laser-generated time machine. So, uh, so where are we now in, in, in the research? Well, that remember what I said was I'm a theoretical physicist. Okay. That's important because Einstein came up with this famous equation equals mc squared back in 1905. It wasn't until the 30s that his equation was shown to be to have practical significance with nuclear fission. Why was that important? Remember why that breakthrough came through with nuclear fission. That breakthrough came through and was proven because of the Second World War. Why was that important? Funding. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, that's key. If it hadn't been for the funding that was pumped into demonstrating his equation, we would not have nuclear power today, okay? The reason why I mention that is people forget the role of funding. We wanted to have humans on the moon. Science fiction writers had written about that <laughs> decades ago. It cost billions of dollars to put a person on the moon. Another example, and you'll see where I'm going with the back in 2017, the Nobel Prize was won for the discovery of gravity waves. What are these gravity waves? When two black holes smash against each other, they will actually cause ripples of space itself. Now, remember what I said, ripples of space, those are gravity. That's gravity, right? 
So gravity waves are actually ripples of space. When two black holes smash against each other, they cause ripples of space. Those ripples of space are called gravity waves, and they were detected here on the Earth for the first time. Einstein's theory predicted them over 100 years ago, but it wasn't until now that we had the technology and the funding. Now, that experiment should sound like it's simple and could be done. You know what the cost? And people are always stunned. That experiment cost $1 billion, $100 million. So now come back to my work. Okay. I'm a theoretical physicist. I've come up with these basic equations. What is it that I lack? Funding for the experiments. Mm-hmm. Just to do a feasibility study. And by that, I mean just to show that the, that not even with the time travel, the, I, just to show that the circulating beam of laser light will cause a twisting of space. Mm-hmm. Okay? Which could have practical applications, by the way. Just to show that feasibility study for that is a quarter of a million dollars. That's not something that I have as pocket change. Okay. So where things stand is trying to get the funding for that. Now, my work is known, but the thing is, is that trying to get the funding to do it and people say, well, why don't you contact Bill Gates or, you know, Elon Musk, right? These these people get (laughs) hundreds of things. I'm not going to do that. You know, the thing is, is that if someone new knows them and they want to go and tell them about me, that's fine. But, you know, he, he gets people who some of them aren't nutcases, but some of them are, you know, and it's like, I mean, forget it. You know, the thing is, is that that that's why it's still just theoretical. The equations are there, but it's funding. It lacks the funding. It's going to cost millions more. But as I said, we don't even have the money for the feasibility study. One of the things that I have a hope of eventually is that what will that would bring my work to more attention is, for example, programs like the one that we're doing that will reach out to people who say, you know, gee, let's look at what Mallet's doing. You know, let's see what the scientific basis of this is. OK, uh, is there something in here that that makes sense? Because that's fine. I'm willing to sit down with any corporate groups that want to look at that. And as I said, just the first part of part of that, just the twisting of space by circulating light beam could lead to practical applications that have nothing to do with time travel. It's a spinoff. And that would not require the kind of energy that's necessary to try to do, to go to the next level. But at least it would show that, that, um, that the basis for it is there. What are, the, what, are the, um, what are some of the practical spinoffs? Okay, good question. The thing is, is that, and now let me give you a simple example. Communication. Suppose that you're sitting, you're laying in the bathtub, okay, and you want to get the bar of soap from one end where you are to the other end of the tub. You give it a push, okay, and it moves towards the other end. But now let's suppose that I want to get it there faster. How do I do that? Well, one way I could do that is not just simply move the bar through the water, but give the water a push in addition to moving it through. What will happen? The water then is going to be propelling it as well as being through it. So, so you're going to be pro- propelling that bar of soap, not just through the water, but with the water. Let's come back to my work. The analogy here is that space is like the water. Okay. Normally what we do to send things through 
let's say electrons is one way we send information through, is we send electrons through space. Imagine that in addition to spending, sending electrons through space, we also use space itself to push the electron. We can actually get it to go ultra fast because we actually are sending it with space and not just simply through space. That is what my theory, just the first part of my work shows that we can manipulate space itself using light. So we could actually use that for the basis of ultra fast communication or propulsion. It could be used for ultra for as a part of a propulsion system. So that is those are actually just practical spin-offs just by showing how light can manipulate space. And that has not been shown, but, it, but the theoretical basis of it is solidly there. And it's actually part of my first uh, paper that the peer reviewed paper that came out, which has a complicated name, weak gravitational field of the electromagnetic radiation in a ring laser. Okay. Okay. And it has all the equations and everything in there. And it's valid. I mean, you know, I, no one in the community has argued with it. Yeah. Now, the thing is, is that when it comes to the time travel portion of it, the energies there are unbelievably high. And that's where I agree with some of the critics. Because what the critics say is, okay, the mathematics is okay, but is it going to be technologically feasible? And that's a good question because the energy there seems to be, I mean, galactic. But that's where engineering comes in. There are ways in which one can overcome these thresholds. That's what happened, in fact, with nuclear fission. It didn't seem like it was going to be possible for that process to happen. But then quantum mechanics showed that it did. And that's one of the things that I haven't brought into my work yet is quantum theory. But in any case, my point is, is that there's spinoffs that happen at a practical level mm -hmm. even before we get to time travel. But, you know, I have to have people who are willing to sit down and just look at those aspects of it. But they're real. But um, one of the other things, as I said, is that getting the news out there, just people wanting to know about, you know, my work. And mm -hmm. one of the things that has happened as a result of, of being out there is the fact that Hollywood has become interested in my book. Yeah. And that's one thing that I'm very proud of. My, my book, uh, Time Traveler, is actually, oh, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> right. And it's, it's, it was uh, written with uh, uh, New York Times bestselling author, Bruce Henderson. And it's, it's actually, Hollywood has shown an interest in it. Yeah. So, well, so, so hey, um, I'm sorry. No, I did have a question about the book. Like, you know, what made you finally decide to write a, you know, to get involved in writing a book about uh, your, your life and your research? Well, in fact, the, the purpose was two, was both, it's an autobiography, as you know, as well as a scientific, in other words, I wanted to tell people about the real scientific possibility of time travel, but I also wanted to write a book that was going to inspire yeah. young people to know what the journey is, because as you know, in there, I get pretty frank about, you know, my personal life and, yeah. and, and what it means to be an African-American, you know, going through this. I mean, I, I go in there and I talk about, you know, what the things that I experienced in the military. Uh, I was in Mississippi, you know. Yeah. So all of that is in there. So the book is written and I tell people say, well, can I understand this book? Yeah, because it's not technical and it's also an autobiography. And that's one of the reasons why Hollywood is interested in Hollywood would not be particularly interested. They're interested in the backstory mainly as well as, you know, the, 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 it, it has as one um, 
reviewer put it, it has all the things that Hollywood likes. You know, it has this uh, heartwarming story. Mm-hmm. Plus, it talks about something that is exciting: time travel. And and can you tell us what are who are some of those Hollywood uh, people that's been um, interested in your book? <laughs> both, both my my co-author and my film agent would not be too happy about. Indeed, that. indeed. What, what they have said is that it's fine to talk about the fact that there is real interest in Hollywood, but but not yeah. be specific. You know, the thing that I feel really good about, the fact that one of the things that my film agent feels really good about is the fact that there really is now becoming more of an interest in Hollywood in African-American stories. And yeah. is, is that this, that actually is going to help me enormously. So uh, that I feel, but the other thing is, is that once it gets to that level of being a feature film, I mean, I've been in many, many documentaries, but people generally don't go to movies for documentaries. And I'm, I should mention that I love movies, just movies generally. I go yeah. to movies, feature movies for entertainment. I go to documentaries for information. Yeah. And I know the difference between the two. And the thing is, is that once a feature film would be made, it would bring it to the level that maybe those people with the deep pockets, you know, the, the Elon Musk and the, you know, uh, Bill Gates or corporations would say, well, look, let's let's talk to this guy and see what, you know, what he's really got here. You know, that's what I hope that that's one of the other spinoffs that I hope would happen with a Hollywood feature film. So I got I just I have a uh, Cal, you can ju- uh, jump in. I just, I just have a couple more questions. Um, and I just want you to, I know you talked about it in the book, but I maybe want you to you know, kind of talk about it with the people who maybe first, it might be their first time um, um, hearing about you or they haven't read the book yet. Uh, you know, what being a black physicist, uh, you know, what were some of the barriers that you experienced, you know, and then also, when it comes down to your research, you know, have you faced um, issues with credibilities based on race as opposed to based on your uh, scholarly accomplishments and research? No. I, I, well, let me answer both of your questions. The thing is, is that, yes, I felt that there were some physicists who might not be, you know, believe that's someone such as myself might exist, okay? Um, I actually knew that in a very real way because this is something that is actually well-known. There was a man named William Shockley. Yeah, yeah. And Shockley is extremely important to physics and to the practical aspect because he was one of the co-inventors of the transistor. Yeah, What's sad is, is that here's this Nobel Prize winner who made it blatantly clear that he felt that African-Americans weren't intellectually competent enough. My research leads me, and it's a tragic conclusion, really. uh, My research leads me inescapably to the opinion that the major cause of the American Negro's intellectual and social deficits is hereditary and racially genetic in origin, and thus not remediable to a major degree by practical improvements in environment. In other words, I, I shouldn't be, I shouldn't exist, according to him. Mm-hmm. Okay, and I knew about that as a young person, and so that affected, you know, my my feelings. But the thing is, is that did it? Did I find that I had that resistance happening in a direct way? No, because I was lucky. I, I really have to say I was fortunate. The University of Connecticut physics department that I was in 
they really gave me a chance and they really were supportive of me and they really wanted to see. And the thing is, is that, you know, and I was told bluntly, you know, it wasn't like I was given a, a slide on this. Um, and I knew this even going in because uh, and I should mention, in, in fact, it did affect my my thesis in a way, because the thing is, is that I knew when I finished my thesis my, for my Ph.D. You don't have to have it published in a referee journal. OK, at, at Penn State. The thing is, is that it just has to be accepted by your. The, the faculty. But I looked around at some of the other, you know, Ivy League schools and some of them actually require that it should be publishable. OK, moreover. I remember I said that it's the, the referees, it's a process that's anonymous. The referee only gets your name. They don't know you personally and you don't know them. Mm-hmm. That was important to me. I actually asked my thesis advisor to submit it for peer review outside the physics department. Why did I ask that? Because I knew I trusted and admired the faculty at Penn State, but I did not want anyone to say, oh, well, they let him go. You know, they, they, they you know, he's, you know, when I'm saying these things under, under night, because if I have a referee peer review publication out there, they can't say that. Mm-hmm. So I, I, and my thesis advisor said, you know, you're taking a, you know, a risk here because it could be rejected. And then what are you going to do? And I said, I'll take my chances. So that affected me in a sense that I wanted to have my thesis. I wanted to know that it was being accepted by the physics community and not just simply by the physics department. Okay. Mm-hmm. That was my own self-respect, but it was, you know, as I said, it wasn't that that that's the way the department would have been, but that's the way I felt that I didn't want anyone to say that I didn't earn. Mm-hmm. Okay. That was one aspect of it. Okay, uh, but in the physics department, when I came to the University of Connecticut, I had the good fortune that some of the faculty members said, "Look, you're going to be just gay, you know, like everyone else here," and he said that. In fact, I still remember this faculty member said, you know, they tell you that there's three th- important things for a faculty member. It's service, teaching, and research. And he said, I'm here to tell you that the three important things are research, research. <laughs> he said, you published a paper with your thesis advisor. He said, now you've got to publish a solo paper the first year you're here mm-hmm. in a good journal. And I did. Mm-hmm. So yeah. the thing is, is that that, you know, I knew that I was going to have to prove myself. And so you might say in that sense, I knew that being an African-American was an aspect of that, that I was going to have to prove myself. And that's OK. Yeah. But the thing is, is that I knew that it was that was going to be there. And as I said, that's but but the thing is, is that my department have been how they were superb. And some of them have passed away, and I still remember them dearly. And I mentioned some of them in my uh, in my book. But I felt very, very fortunate to be in the physics department that I was in at the University of Connecticut. And they still have me as um, a member. I'm emeritus now, but that has, as a status mm-hmm. uh, in the department. So, so here's you know the thing is is that so yes, 
the young people out there should realize, the African-American young people, that that's going to be in the background. But that's okay. It just means that it challenges you a little bit more to make sure that you're there and you're going to do it. Yeah. You know, so so you see, you should see it as a challenge. I wish it didn't have to be that way. Yeah. But that's the way in which it really is. You know, uh, you said one of the reasons you wrote the book was also to be an inspiration. And I told you that, you know, you inspired me and then also my students who learned about you through me. Um, I mean, do you do you feel any pressure like with that as far as being a beacon, like being a black man who's a physicist and then being a beacon of inspiration to other black people, um, students who might aspire to be uh, a physicist as well? You know, do you feel any pressure with that? I say bring it on. <laughs> you know, in other words, I want to be, you know, the thing is, is that it's important for me to be because I want to help these young people to achieve the best that they can be and to know that it's possible is important. So it's not pressure. I feel I feel blessed that I'm in a position that I can do that. Okay. Okay. Yeah, and all my questions not. I, I just been listening. I really appreciate you know everything that you're doing, especially uh, you know you definitely inspire me to you know ins- look at you know through theoretical physics as a possible uh, PhD route for me. I want to my do. Yeah, I want to get my physics. I want to get a, a PhD uh, in physics. I just don't know what uh, specific topic, but I love teaching so. I'm going to probably stick with teaching for a little bit, but then, um, but your story has definitely been really inspirational. And I, I, I just did pretty much everything. <laughs> yeah. So, but the thing is, is that, you know, one of the things is, is that I loved teaching, being a physics professor. That for me was something that I really, really enjoyed very much. And I still do. I mean, I still give talks literally all over the world. I mean, I've been blessed to be able to give talks. In fact, I feel like Austria is one of my second homes. I was on one of their television programs called uh, Science Busters in Austria. You know, I mean, it was, it was it's incredible. I mean, the thing is, is that I love teaching. And so that's something that you can definitely do. The thing is, is that by becoming a faculty member, it just allows you more freedom that in addition to your teaching, you're able to do, you know, your research as well. And here's here's the other thing that, you know, being a theoretical physicist to me is, I'll have to tell you that the last day I worked was when I left United Technologies. I have not, I have not worked a day in my life since then. In other words, over 30 years, I haven't worked because every day that I went to the university, I thought, wow, you know, so I I don't feel like I've worked a day in my life for the past 30 years. Yeah. So, you know, I'm glad you said that, you know, you, uh, you feel like you haven't worked. And then this fact being a professor and teaching, that is something that you love, love as well. And as you know, you know in demand, we are uh, educators um, and we connect uh, black men to opp- for opportunities to not only be educators, but to be mentors and volunteers um, in the lives of students. And so I'm interested in what's your take on that? You know, uh, why do you think it's important for black men to be involved in the lives of students as educators and mentors and volunteers? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, the thing is, is that to me, that should be as central. Mm. Your teaching and your other work, because the thing is, is that it's by 
it I mean it it's by you helping others in the past. I mean that's you know all these other people that have helped me to get to where I am. They've been inspirations for me. And the thing is, is that I think that I'm repaying that. I'm repaying those teachers that, you know, I mentioned a lot of my teachers. As I said, I mentioned my high school teachers in there, in my book. The thing is, is that, and I mentioned, you know, the, not just my high school teachers, but I mentioned, you know, some faculty who, who've been inspiration for me. The point is, is that that's extremely important. And it's been important for me because as a black man, you know, I didn't have that. And now I can be in that position to help and not just simply, you know, help minority kids. But, you know, here's the thing. I help all kids. And the thing is, is that, but they all, on the other hand, see that I'm someone that's, that's possible. In other words, they, they, they understand that Shockley, you know, this is a family program, so I'm not going to say, you know, things. He was wrong. <laughs> I'll put it that way. Yeah. Shockley was wrong. You know? And I'll put a clip of Shockley, but I, I became aware of Shockley when I was in high school. They used to tell us about how he uh, pretty much got on national television and said what you said. And like, you know, his plan was for uh, black men to be paid to become sterile because <laughs> because they wasn't, you know, they need to rein in how many kids they were having because they not they wasn't being um beneficial to society and you know uh when I, I was mad and then when i finally saw it i was like wow <laughs> this guy literally went on television and said this so yeah he was wrong you know and you're living proof and we're living proof that he was wrong exactly but it's but it's extremely important i think for african-american males to be out there for and for african-american women you know the thing is is that uh that african-american women really are the backbone of what you know have of the stability that has been shown indeed the thing is is that they it's important for for them as well so yeah for for i should simply say for african americans educators are extremely important and i think that that's something that to me it's a blessing to be able to teach it's a blessing to be able to educate I mean, to me, that's something that that's one of the highest callings that one can have is to be a teacher and an educator. And to me, that's something that I'm proud that I am, in addition to being a scientist. All right. Um, so I think, man, I think we, we're done. Uh, unless, Cal, you got anything else? No, I just want to uh, just say, uh, just like, you know, real briefly, you know, when you are developing a new theory from an already established equation, like what's the first thing you do? <laughs> you know. <laughs> well, the thing is, is that, and that's important because you, you know, whenever you're doing this, you have to make sure that your your the math is correct. As a theoretical physicist, I already knew the tools. That's but but. Having the tools of some, you know, I like to use uh, the analogy of uh, music, for instance. I mean, I love music, all kinds of music. And the thing is, is that uh, it's like you learn from your teachers the know how to compose, how to do this. And then you come to a certain point where you want to do something that's beyond what's already been done. But now you have the basic tools to do that. 
And so now that's where your creativity comes in. And then you are able to should be able to put that all together and come up with some new tune, some new you know way of expressing it. And that to me is what what happens. But then to come back to what we were talking about generally, as far as educators are concerned, when you're composing, when a composer composes, or if you're looking at a sheet of music, you know you see just see notes on it, for instance. Okay, now I could show that page of notes to someone. And they say, you know, they see a bunch of, you know, ink wads. What is the difference? Then it's the musician who converts those notes into music. Okay. That's what I see the educator as, you know, as physicists, we, we use mathematics. Mathematics is like the notes. Then educators are like the performers, the musician who converts those notes into music that can be appreciated by the public generally. And so that's what I see my I see myself as being the composer and the musician. I create, but I also perform so that people can appreciate the beauty of it, what it is that I've composed. Mm. Man, um... I'm so I'm so intrigued by by you and your story and just I feel like a little I know a little bit more about you from talking with you but then also from reading your book and let me say with your book um, it's a great read because it you know for me it does get technical but it's like it go, it swings back and forth between the technical and the relatable and you know and the biography and you know and my my kids like my son I just had to take it from him because he's been reading it you know and my son is twelve. And uh, my youngest has been, you know, he's next to reading. He's 10. So, you know, for them to sit down and read it and ask questions. And uh, I, uh, one of the things that stuck out to me, you know, because I, I love movies as well. Like my favorite genre is of science fiction is time travel. And so that's why I was so intrigued by your work early on. But um, there was a part in there where uh, you talked about being on campus um, and the was it the CIA or the FBI? Oh, the, it was the FBI. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah, I remember that. I mean, that was that was that during the, that high time that, you know, that the FBI was interested in a lot of these student groups, especially the African-American student groups. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, they, they wanted me to uh, become an informant for them, yeah. you know, and uh, that was that was interesting. And what was your response for the people who uh, who watching? Well, the, my response to them was, you know, forget it. You know, and the thing <laughs> is, is that. That they, but they they applied a bit of a subtle pressure too because uh, I was as a grad student. I mean, the way in which I uh, was able to fund my undergraduate work was I got the GI Bill, as I mentioned, that paid for my bachelor's degree. But for my master's and PhD, I was fortunate enough to have a National Science Foundation traineeship. Okay, and that allowed me the time that I needed to work on my PhD. The thing is, is that the way it was almost like they were thinking about that they could twist my arm, but they, they made the statement. Well, okay, you can, can you can, you can keep your, you, the way he, he phrased it was okay. Uh, you know, just keep on then. It was like, they, they actually really thought that they, if they had wanted to, they could have done something like put a stop to my uh, traineeship. Mm-hmm. And, but the thing is, is that's, thank goodness they didn't decide to go there. But I think that they were I think they were hinting yeah. that if they had wanted to go there, 
they could have gone there. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and but it didn't matter. I mean, I thought they got to be kidding me. I just finished reading James Baldwin to Fire next time. Yeah, and 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 I'm gonna, you know, I I I thought these people really are clueless. Yeah. No, I, I mean, I, I just um, you know, I just watched the uh, Judas and the Black Messiah about uh, Fred Hampton and and um, was it Bill? Was his William? What's his last name? Cal. William Informant. That's all I know. Yeah, yeah, William Informant. But yeah, that it was a young guy. He was what? They was, was like 20, 19. And, you know, he was doing some illegal stuff. And they, like you said, they twisted his arm to um, to um, infiltrate uh, the Chicago chapter of the Black Panther Party. And, you know, he, the, the um, information he provided led to the cops actually being able to, to uh, murder Fred Hampton in his, in his house. So, yeah, so definitely, we know, that's something that, you know, that until pro all that, that was something that was that was real in our history. So, oh, yeah. No, I mean, it was that was I was angry. <laughs> but the thing is, is that the way I knew to turn my anger was to be successful. That's right. You know, I mean, that that's that's the way to do it. I mean, not not, you know, and, and that's and as I said, I feel like uh, I feel really privileged to have gotten where I am. And as I said, I have been helped not just simply by the African-American community, but, but I, by the white community and some of the key people who I've mentioned to you, uh, Scott Bonas, you know, uh, and my first boss, Jerry Peterson. I mean, these people were people who uh, were, you know, I think, and this is the other thing. I think that, that there are many more good people out there than we want and will, that will help. Mm-hmm. But you actually have to show that you're trying to strive too, you know. But the thing is, is that you have to realize that you're walking, you know, in two worlds. And the thing is, is that they're going to help. There are people who are going to help you, but there are people who are going to be thrilled if you don't make it. Yeah. And you have to keep that that fire inside that says, you know, that's not going to happen. You know, you're not going to get any pleasure out of my failure. Yeah. Well, Dr. Mallet, thank you for uh, coming on and shedding light into your research and to your life. And, you know, definitely being an inspiration to, uh, you know, to me, to my students, uh, to, you know, my kids, my my own kids right now, too, by, by learning about they, they They're here listening right now, too. So. Uh, I just thank you just for uh, agreeing to, to, to join us. Uh, it's a dream of mine to be able to even talk to you. So thank you for joining us on the In Demand podcast. It, well, it's been my pleasure and my privilege. And thank you very much for wanting me to be on the program. Yeah, indeed. Sunrise, sun, people fall.